All right, praise God. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as a member of the Malawi team, just wanted to give one more push. Thank you, Anson, for announcing it. But please, uh, come next week hungry and bring money. Okay, these are times when I don't feel bad just saying bring money <laughs> because we need um, uh, people to really support the team. So we're going to be selling lunch boxes. Uh, please uh, come uh, ready to just buy lunch here, and that way all of it, 100% of the proceeds will go to the Malawi team. So yeah, so praise God. Okay, uh, open up your Bibles to Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and we're going to get into the Word of God. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And if you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on the screen at home. But Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Okay, this is God's Word. So blessed studying Revelation together. But this is God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned your love, your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much, Lord. Lord, we know because of scripture that you are here in the midst. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would completely take control. That you would take control of our wandering thoughts, our hearts that may be filled with anxiety or things that we need to do. Whatever it may be, Father, people we want to meet, Lord God, please take control of our hearts. And I pray that you would, Father God, just really bring us to you, that you would be the focus right now. And thank you for this word. Please speak through it now, Lord, as we continue to hear what you are saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, praise the Lord. Well, last week we began this entire new series in the first three chapters of Revelation. And Revelation, if you don't know, is the final book of the entire Bible. And it's very well known for being very strange and dramatic. There are all these images about beasts in the end times. And some people have called the book of Revelation a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And Churchill is actually the one who said that first, but he said that, said that about Russia. There's a lot of talk about Russia these days. But some people would consider Revelation even harder to figure out than even Russia. And no doubt there are parts in the book of Revelation that are hard to understand, and yet, okay, this is something I tried to make clear last week, and yet this book was written to a group of churches at the end of the first century. They were weak, they were worldly, and they were in trouble. It sounds very similar to churches today. And God gave them this book of Revelation so that they might read it and understand it. He didn't give it to them to confuse them, but he gave it to them to encourage them. So this book, in fact, is not a mystery at all. So then what was the main point of Revelation? Okay, why was it written? Is the main point a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma? I would say no. Because God, through the Apostle John, tells us what it's all about right at the very beginning. So open up chapter 1, verse 1. Take a look. But it says right at the beginning, the revelation of Jesus Christ. God couldn't be more clear. The word revelation there is the word apocalypsis, and it means the opposite of a riddle or mystery. It means the opposite. But it means something that was hidden in the past, and now God has revealed it. That's what revelation means. That's what apocalypsis means. It's something that was a mystery before, but now has been brought into the open and made plain. So again, it's the very opposite of a mystery. So the book of Revelation is the opposite of what people think. 
is not a mysterious book full of riddles, scary images, strange creatures. Rather, it's a book that has revealed, that has brought out into the open what Jesus Christ is like. After he died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. What is Jesus like? What is he like in glorified form? Well, Revelation reveals that to us. It reveals all that Jesus will do shortly before his return, during his return, and immediately after his return. See, the book of Revelation is really the revelation of Jesus Christ. I said last week that could mean from Jesus Christ or the revelation about Jesus Christ. I think it's both. It's from him and it's about him. But it's revealing Jesus to us. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it's not only about him surrounding his second coming. But this is a revelation about Jesus right now. About him right now as the church awaits his return. And what is it that is revealed about Jesus? Okay, this is the focus of the first three chapters. This is what we looked at last week. Okay, what do we learn about Jesus right now? This is what we learn. He is standing in the midst of his church. Amen? He is right here in the midst of the church. John said in Revelation 1, 12, and 13, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Again, weird expression. I wanted to see the voice. That's how loud, that's how significant it was. I want to see this voice. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. These lampstands are the seven churches in Asia Minor, which represent all the churches throughout history. But when he turned around, he saw the seven golden lampstands, I believe, in a circle. That's the way I picture it. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Okay, that's Jesus. So what does that mean? Jesus right here in the midst. See, that's what we need to understand from this book. Right from the opening, John is saying, I saw Jesus high and lifted up in glorious form. And he's not just up there, but he is right here in the midst of his church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. He is not distant. He is not distracted. But he is right here. In fact, he's right in the midst of every true church. And this is a reality that few Christians really understand, few Christians really experience. You know, last week I shared some examples of how over the years, Jesus revealed that to me, that he is right here. It's actually one of the most powerful experiences starting this church and pastoring it for all these years. It's time and time again, Jesus revealed, I am here, Roy. You are making mistakes, and I'm going to correct it. You are in need, I'm going to provide it. And Jesus, time and time again, showed me that he is right here. And so Jesus is right here in the midst. He is in the midst of his church always. And what is he doing in the midst? Why is he here? What is he doing? Is he just hanging out with us? Is he just watching us? You know, my brother's here today. I want you to meet him if you have a chance, but <laughs> my brother and I, we always talk about how uh, my dad always creeped us out when we were little because we would, you know, be kind of falling asleep, and then we would suddenly look up, and we would see my dad just staring at us in the doorway. It was like the creepiest thing, right? I don't know. You could talk to my brother. It was very creepy. Like, oh, my gosh. Just kind of ignore him, pretend to go to sleep. But is that what Jesus is doing? Sorry, Dad. But is that what he's doing? Is he just standing here just staring at us? <laughs> I mean, what is he doing as he is in the midst? Well, we saw last week he is at work. He is ministering to his church. So if you go back to chapter 1 and look at John's vision of Jesus, every part of Jesus' appearance, the way he looks, the things that he's wearing, it represents a ministry he is doing for the church. We need to understand that. It's directly connected. He is in the midst of his church, and then John goes into the way he looks. Why? Because everything represents a ministry for the church. So, for example, his robe with the golden sash represents his ministry as a priest. In other words, Jesus, as he's here, is constantly representing God to us and representing us to God. He is also constantly praying for the church. He is the priest, the high priest. His hair is white as wool, white as snow. That represents his wisdom and guidance of the church. His eyes are like flaming fire. That represents his perfect knowledge of the church. He sees everything. His feet are like burnished bronze. Burnished means glowing with heat. That represents Jesus' authority to discipline the church. Picture Jesus stomping out sin. That's what he's talking about. He has the authority to stomp out sin in his church with his feet. His voice are like roars of many waters. That represents Jesus speaking to the church. We talked a lot about that last week. But his voice thunders throughout the church. How? In what way? 
through the Bible. Every time this book is opened up and read or taught, Jesus' voice is heard loud and clear throughout the church. His voice is always teaching, correcting, encouraging, and empowering the church through his word. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That represents Jesus' protection of the church. Jesus will use his word to expose false teachers and false teachings. He will use his word to fight against the enemy's work. Did you know the enemy is always at work inside the church? He's always trying to wreak havoc. Well, Jesus will protect his church. How? With the word that comes out of his mouth like a sword. His face is shining like the sun, the noonday sun. That represents his glory going through the church. His glory is always upon the church. And then finally, the seven stars in his right hand. That represents Jesus' possession of the church. We belong to him. We're in his hands. And so you clearly, every single aspect of Jesus, his description, represents his ministry to the church. Do you see that? You need to make that connection. So he was always at work in the church, and this is not the last time you're going to see these descriptions. But as we begin to go into the letters now, so for the next seven weeks, several weeks, we're going to look at the letters he wrote to each church. At the beginning of each letter, you're going to see one of these descriptions. And that makes sense, because each of these letters is Jesus ministering to the church. And so at the beginning of these letters, Jesus is shown to be a minister. How? Through one of these descriptions. So it makes sense why we're going to see these descriptions again. So please pay attention to that. So all of that is reviewed from last week. And today what we're going to do is finally get into the first letter that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus. So this is Jesus' first letter to the church at Ephesus. And like all the other churches in Revelation 2 and 3, this was a historic church. It was a real church. It was in Asia Minor. And it was there in the first century. And this church, together with all the other seven churches, I'm sorry, six other churches, they represent all the churches throughout history. So not only were they actual churches, but they represent all the churches throughout history, including our church. And so when Jesus addressed these churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus was also addressing churches today. We can take these letters as personal to us. These churches represent all the churches through history. Now, the church at Ephesus was the first church that Jesus addressed. Okay, why? Why is this the first one? Well, first, it's because it was the first church that was started. The other six churches in Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, they all came out of the church at Ephesus. So the church at Ephesus started all these other churches. So the church at Ephesus was the first church out of the six or seven churches. Not only that, it was the first church in power and influence. Since all the other churches came out of the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian church had a lot of power, a lot of influence in that whole region and over all the other churches. So it was first in power and influence. It also had a string of all-star leaders leading the church, and we're going to look at that a little later. So it was a powerful church. But here's one more reason why Jesus addressed this church first. I want you to understand this. But the church at Ephesus was also struggling with something that will lead to all the other struggles that we see in the church. In other words, the problem that the Ephesian church had will lead to all other problems that we tend to see in the church. And again, this wasn't just true of their church, but all churches throughout history. And what problem am I talking about? Losing your first love. See, that problem in that church was the first problem that led to all the other problems that you're going to begin to see in all the other churches. And this, by the way, is true not only of churches, but individuals. You think of any problem you have in your walk with Christ. Anything that you're struggling, anything that has been just really difficult in your faith, it probably, somewhere, somewhere along the line, can be traced back to you losing your first love. And even human relationships, they're like that, aren't they? But losing your first love is always the first problem that leads to all other problems. But if you have ever seen married couples struggling in their marriage, why do they struggle? Well, it's because somewhere along the way, if you go all the way back, they lost their first love. That's the first problem that leads to all other problems. So it's the same with uh, us in Christ. But that is always the first problem that leads to everything else. So here's Jesus. Again, picture, he's standing in the midst of his church. And because he's ministering to his church, he addresses this problem 
head on. Okay, look at verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Okay, you've left your first love. And how many Christians and churches today is Jesus saying this to? Okay, how many? We're not exempt from this. But Jesus is still saying this to the church today. So let's look at what Jesus is saying. Okay, let's look at what he said to the church at Ephesus. And what I want to look at today is their foundations of love, their loss of love, their restoration of love, and finally Jesus' promise of love. But there's a lot here that Jesus said to the Ephesian church. So first, the foundations of love. The foundations of love. Jesus told the Ephesians, you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what does this mean? This means that the church at Ephesus had love for Christ at first, right? It means they really did love Jesus at first. Well, where did that love come from? Well, their love for Christ came from Christ's love for them. Their love for Christ came from Christ's love for them. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So love always comes from love. Okay, this is the foundation, but love always comes from love. And Jesus, when you look at how the Ephesian church started, he lavished his love upon them when they first started. But Jesus loved them, first of all, by sending all these leaders. I mean, they were all-stars. I mean, if you could just pick your dream team of leaders to start a church in the New Testament, it would be these people. But Jesus just sent all these leaders, one after another, to lead this church. The Apostle Paul started this church. After that, Timothy, his disciple, began to pastor this church. Through the course of their history, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, excellent leaders, they all came and offered leadership to the church. And then finally, John the Apostle, the last surviving apostle, John, the great John the Apostle, he came in and became their uh, pastor as well. In fact, this is probably the church he was pastoring when he got arrested and sent to Patmos, the island of Patmos. So what does this mean? Jesus loved this church. He sent all these leaders, one after another, to them. But it was more than that. He lavished his love upon them through the proclamation of the gospel. See, through these leaders, the true gospel came to this church. The gospel was planted deep into the soil of Ephesus. And from that soil sprouted all this fruit. The gospel began to grow, it began to bear fruit, and it took over the whole city. But this is worth looking at. Look at Acts 19, 9 through 12, and then verse 18. Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. So he pulled away from the Jews. They weren't receptive. He pulled away, and then he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So do you see that? When Paul arrived in Ephesus, he drove the gospel deep into the soil of Ephesus. And it was so deep that it began to just bear all this fruit. Signs and wonders began to happen. Great repentance happened. It says there are many of the people who believe would turn out and in public bring all their witchcraft, magic art, idolatry, and all their idols, and they would burn them. And it says here that it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. I calculated it. In today's money, that would be well over a million dollars. Over a million dollars today. And so this was a massive revival. The love of Christ had poured down on them. This is where the revival came from. So what am I saying? Their love for Christ came from Christ's love for them. And so love comes from love. So this is the foundation. But how did Jesus' love come to them in such a powerful way? Did it come to them because Paul just showed up and said, Hey, Ephesus, Jesus loves you. No, no, no. Jesus really loves you. Is that what Paul did? Now, I remember reading this article one time. I think it was a CNN article. But there was a celebrity on trial for something. I really don't remember what it was. I tried to look for it. I couldn't find it. But I did read it. But the celebrity was on trial for something. And during the trial, 
a man in the stands stood up and threw a ball at him. And so everybody turned around and saw it, and the celebrity caught the ball, and on the ball was written, God loves you. And when that celebrity saw it, he basically went, and he said thanks, right? He just nodded and said thanks. And now, I think the man who threw the ball meant well, but what effect did that have on the celebrity? Based on what I could tell, not much. He just kind of nodded. He's like, yeah, thanks. And I can't know for sure, but it seemed to have very little effect. Because for that celebrity, it was just another nice thought on top of a lot of nice thoughts he's been given. And so is that what Paul did when he came to Ephesus? Did he just tell people, God loves you, Ephesus? This is what so many Christians do today. They come to people and they go, do you know God loves you? No, God really, really loves you. Let me tell you how much God loves me. God loves you too. And they just tell them, God loves you so much. Is that what Paul did? I don't think so. Because nobody comes to know the love of God in that way. Nobody. That's not how you came to know the love of God. Going back to that celebrity in the courtroom, the reason why he seemed unaffected by the message, and again, I have no way of knowing for sure, but the reason why he seemed unaffected is probably because in his mind he was thinking, I'm doing fine. Okay, I'm fine. Yeah, thank you. You know, yeah, that's great if God loves me, but even if he doesn't, I'm okay. Again, I don't know if that's what he was thinking for sure, but I do know for a lot of people who hear God loves them and they're unaffected, that's exactly the reason why. Is they're thinking in their heads, I'm fine. I'm okay. I already have a Savior functioning perfectly in my life. Thank you very much. I already have a Savior. In fact, people often have many Saviors. You could already name what they are. You know what they are in your life. A career, a good reputation, friends, kids. These are the things I look to day after day. In my heart, these are the things I trust. And I know I trust in these things because the moment they are removed, then my life collapses. I know it would. And so I have these saviors, and I'm fine. And so their trust is not in Christ. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, man, God loves you so much, they go, okay, thank you. I'll just add that to my drawer of joy, right? All these other saviors I have. And so in their hearts day to day, they have put their trust in something else, and it's not Christ. And here's how you know what you put your trust in. It stirs up your love. It stirs up your love. When you put it next to Christ, Christ just can't compete. And we're going to look at this more later. But it simply can't compete. To Jesus Christ and this other thing, and you know where your heart goes. And this is why merely hearing that God loves you won't change a thing. Instead, this is what we need to hear. We need to hear what Andrew Jackson heard before he became president of the United States. Okay, I remember hearing this story it was very, very like, wow, okay, I wish I could be like this. But Andrew Jackson, he was the seventh president of the United States, and he was a war hero at this time. He wasn't president yet. But I heard, history says, that he came into this church service one time, and when people found out that Andrew Jackson was in the service, this one man went up to the pastor and said, you know what, I heard Andrew Jackson is in service today, so be careful what you say. And the pastor said, okay. And then the service started, and then the minister got up to preach, and then this is how he began. He said, I heard, and I'm paraphrasing, I heard Andrew Jackson is in the service today. I want to tell him unless he receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he will be damned like everyone else. <laughs> He's like, wow, okay. <laughs> so he took it the other way. Be careful what you're going to say. He's like, all right. So he made it very clear, right, that no amount of fame, power, and prestige can save Andrew Jackson from the wrath of a holy God who will judge the living and the dead. That he, even he, will give an account for every single thought, word, and act. And only the selfless death of Jesus Christ can save him. That was made very clear. And apparently that made an impression because Jackson later said, if I had a thousand men like that preacher, we could take old England. Okay? (laughs) And historians say that later Jackson received Christ as Lord before he died. So Jesus' love broke into his life. See, that's how love came. So this is the only foundation for our love for Christ. See, love comes from love. But it doesn't come from someone just coming to you and just saying, Jesus loves you. Don't you know that? You need to first realize how he loved you and how all these other loves that you have, they cannot compete. So I'm taking time on this because this is going to be very important as we move into the other points. It's going to make all the other points very easy to understand. 
But the saviors I have made for myself can't save me. See, these other things that I look to, they have no security. They have no peace. They have no salvation. We need to understand that in the depths of our hearts, not just hear it right now, but you need to go from this place and just know it in your heart. These things that I look to day after day, trusting in these things, they cannot save me. And even if they are ripped away, even if they're taken away, my life will be okay. My life will be okay. Can you say that? That paycheck you depend on every single month? Okay, we all live paycheck to paycheck. Most of us do. But, but can you say that? If it disappears one day, I'm okay. You know, I mentioned last week the terrible shootings that have been happening, especially in Texas. But God forbid, I mean, I, I don't even want to go there in this thinking. But even if my child were to be ripped away from me, of course, I'd be crushed, but I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Right? Can we say that in the depths of our hearts? And if you can, because you've repented of these other loves and now you've turned to Jesus, he's your only savior, your only love, then you have a firm foundation for loving Christ. Okay, that is the foundation for loving Christ. So people, when they hear the gospel, they need to become open to this. This is what needs to happen before they can move on and understand, well, now what brings loss of love? And so now we come to our second point, the loss of love. So if you understand this first point, all the other points are going to be very easy. It's like, oh, yeah, I understand. But you're going to understand the loss of love. Look at Revelation 2, 2 and 3, and then verse 6. Jesus said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here, Jesus, before he rebuked the Ephesians, he commended them. And so this was a very strong church, and Jesus acknowledged it. But there was a lot that they, were, that they were doing right. So Jesus here gives them an A on a lot of things. But Jesus said, I know your works. How many people sitting in churches today can Jesus say that to? I think there are a lot who never hear it. Why? Because they don't have any works. But Jesus said, I know your works. Ephesus, I know your works. And it's not just works, but Jesus said, I know your toil. This is not just working for God, but they are laboring. That's the word here, labor. I've seen my wife give birth to three kids. It's laborious, right? It's painful. They're toiling. I know your toil and your patient endurance. So they didn't just work, but they were laboring, and they didn't give up in that labor. They endured. They kept going even when it was hard. And it says here in verse 3, they didn't just do it for themselves. They did it for who? Jesus' namesake. They did it for Jesus. So again, they got an A. A. Again, many people in churches today, they will wait a long time before they hear those words. Why? Because they don't have works. And even if they do, they don't endure. And yet for the Ephesians, they worked and they endured. They also stood for truth. Jesus said, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So they didn't just read any Christian book and accept what it, what it said. They didn't just flip on the TV and listen to any Christian preacher and accept what's said. But they tested their teachers. They tested the messages they heard. So they stood for truth. It, it also says here that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hated. The Nicolaitans, we're not sure who they were, but they were a heretical sect. They taught false things. Did you know Jesus hates false teaching? That should cause you to pause before you just pick up any book and begin to accept what it says. But Jesus hates false teaching. And the Ephesians hated it also. And so Jesus said, I commend you for that. They got an A. So the Ephesians, they stood for truth. So do you see this? They labored. They toiled. They endured for Jesus' namesake. They stood for truth. So they were a good church. They were a strong church. Then why would Jesus say to them in verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Why would Jesus say that? Aren't all these good works actual evidence of loving Christ? I mean, that's what I would think. If I see somebody working for Jesus and they're enduring, they don't give up, they're doing it for Jesus' namesake, right? They hate false teachers. They only want the truth of Christ. I mean, I would say, oh yeah, that person loves Jesus. But apparently, no. According to Jesus, no. Those things didn't equate. So then why would Jesus say this? 
You have left your first love. Well, earlier I said love comes from love, right? In other words, our love for Christ comes from his love for us. But here's something else I want us to understand. The loss of love also comes from love. You're like, huh? The loss of love also comes from love. Okay, what I mean by that is there's only one reason that you and I lose love for Christ. It's because of competing loves. So if you understand the first point, this is very easy to understand. Okay, what's the foundation of love? You have turned away from idols, other false saviors, other things that your heart was drawn to, and now you've repented of that and turned to Christ. I love Jesus. That's your first love. That's the foundation. So then why do you lose that love? It's the reverse. It's, it's very simple, brothers and sisters. This isn't complicated. So love comes from love. Our love for Jesus comes from his love for us. But our loss of love also comes from love. Competing loves. It's just going in the other direction. Over time, we loved Christ, but now our hearts get drawn back to these other competing loves. And so the reverse begins to happen. And so no matter what we're doing outwardly, whether we're working hard, toiling, enduring, doing everything for Jesus' name, we're standing for truth, if our hearts is being reversed in the opposite direction, then Jesus says, you've left, you've left your first love. You've left your first love. And so the loss of love also comes from love. It comes because of competing loves. And so all through scripture, you see this, especially in the New Testament. But Jesus, in his great teaching on money, what do you say? You cannot love both God and what? Money. You can't love both. They're competing loves. If you begin to love this thing, what's going to happen? You're going to lose your love for God. What did John say in 1 John? The same author as Revelation. What did he say? If you love the world, then what happens? The love of the Father is not in you. Again, you can't have competing loves. So why? I don't know. People, they just kind of get confused. I've talked to a lot of people over the years. That's what pastors do. And people genuinely get confused. I don't know. I'm not on fire for God. I don't love Jesus like before. I don't know. Maybe I should like listen to some sermons and go to a retreat. Yeah, do that. But more than that, I would say, but what are you loving right now? <laughs> right? It's so simple. The reason why you don't love Jesus right now is because your heart is full of other things. You're preoccupied. Your heart is drawn to loving other things. And so this was the Ephesian church. Even though the Ephesians had all these good works, they had competing loves. In fact, I think the very things Jesus commended them for could have been competing for their love. I think the very things Jesus mentioned competed for their love. So what do I mean? Well, over time, I think their devotion to hard work could have become what they began to love. Well, we're the church that works hard. Have you ever heard that? We're the church that works hard, so pick up a shovel. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad thing to say, but, but we're the church that works hard. right? I don't know about the church that you used to go to, but we work hard here. And so the Ephesian church, maybe that they, they begin to desire this more than Christ himself. They love the way hard work made them feel, the way it made them look, the way people responded to it. Do you see how hard I work? Yeah, yeah, I work very hard for Jesus. I toil, I labor. Maybe it was their commitment to correct doctrine. Okay, that is very commendable, that you stand for truth, and yet over time, maybe they began to live for that rather than live for Christ. It's what got them stirred up and passionate. Okay, have you ever seen that? Christians getting together and they're so passionate about debating theology, and yet when Christ is being ridiculed, Maybe his name is being used as a swear word. They're just quiet. I've literally seen pastors be like that. They're lions when they're debating each other on theology. I stand for truth. What a lion. And yet when they're with their non-Christian friends and someone uses Jesus as a swear word, they're a mouse. They don't even speak up. So love for correct doctrine, competing for their love for Christ. Maybe it was their passion for the cause of Christ. Oh, I love Jesus' cause. I, I will do whatever to start a movement. I've lost count how many conferences I've been to where every speaker is so fired up and they go on and on and on for hours about movements, leadership, launching this and that, being catalytic and all this and that. Again, none of it's bad. We should serve Christ. We should see a movement of God. I want a movement of God here. And yet, when I go to those conferences, I don't hear a single message about Christ, really? I've sat here for three hours, not one message about knowing Christ and who he is and what he's done. All I hear is about movements and all this other stuff. Well, maybe their love for the cause of Christ is competing for their love for Christ. 
Or maybe, and this is, a, this is a very subtle one, but maybe they just love being commended itself. Maybe that's what they loved. They just love being commended. Oh, gosh, yeah, everything Jesus said to us, absolutely. Maybe they didn't even hear the second part. <laughs> you lost your first love. They didn't even hear that part. They're so into themselves and being commended. Their great reputation. Oh, I, I just care about that so much. And so over time, their hearts have been stolen by these things. And so whatever it is, these are competing loves that have come in. They came into that church. And so as soon as that begins to happen, what do you think is going to happen here? Your love for Christ goes down. You don't have to wonder, brothers and sisters. If you're sitting here and you're struggling to love Jesus right now, guaranteed it's because you're loving something else. There's a competing love in your heart. There's no mystery about it. And so how do you know if you have a competing love? How do you know if there's a competing love? Well, here's one way. Little things begin to bother you that didn't bother you before. They begin to bother you that didn't bother you before. Really? Church is at 1030? Really? Oh, my gosh. So early, right? (laughs) Never mind when you got saved, you would go to morning prayer at 6 a.m. But 1030? I'll catch it online, (laughs) right? But the little things begin to bother you that didn't bother you before. The the way the pastor talks. You know, Roy gets really loud. Kind of bothers me. Never mind that when you first started coming out, you got all excited over it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't like that anymore. But things begin to bother you. His grammar, I don't know. His grammar could be a little better. But see, but, but, but why is that a sign of losing your first love? Because love always overlooks imperfections, right? Amen? If you were dating a guy and has a unibrow, I mean, what unibrow? I don't, I don't see a unibrow. Even if somebody points it out, you're like, I don't know. Is that a unibrow? Like, you don't know, right? Why? Because love just overlooks all those things. And yet now, things aren't well. Oh, I hate that. I hate that about him, right? So it becomes so obvious. Little things that bothered you, that didn't bother you before, now bother you. Here's another thing. You lose focus. Right? It's just hard to focus. See, whenever you're in love, or whenever something that you love, your heart genuinely loves, suddenly enters a room, Have you ever talked to a friend and suddenly, you know, you're all talking normally and suddenly your friend totally zones out? Usually, you should just look behind you because something that he loves entered the room. (laughs) Whether it's a person or maybe something on the screen, but something that captures his heart came into the room and so now he lost focus. And so this is very, very easy to understand. But going back to that example of the pastor, so many people, they sit in churches and they are analyzing, critiquing the pastor And I admit, not every pastor is great, not every pastor speaks well, not every pastor has the greatest insights, or is even the best teacher. But a lot of pastors are sincere, and they preach Christ. And when you were first saved, you would just go sit in front of anybody, and if they preach Christ, you're focused, you're paying attention. Why? Because the object of your love is being presented. I'm in love with Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, I'm focused on that. But over time, you lose your focus. Now, this pastor is preaching Christ like before, but now you're just recognizing how he doesn't really speak that well. Okay, his knowledge isn't that deep. I don't really appreciate his grammar. His grammar should be better. Again, what happened? The object of your love isn't there anymore. Even though he's preaching Christ, that's not the object of your love. And so you lose focus. Here's another way. Your patience grows very short. Okay, your patience grows very short. See, when you were first saved and you're in love with Jesus, the amount of demands that people can make on your life was very, very high. You know what I mean. Okay, every single day, five days a week, there can be a ministry event, there can be a gathering of Christians, some prayer meeting, some evangelism thing, and you are there. Again, I'm not saying that you should say yes to everything. I'm not saying that's healthy always. But I'm simply saying your level of patience was very high. Why? Because that's how love is. Okay, it just takes an incredible amount of demand before you begin to feel it. You know, I love this verse in Genesis, but it says Jacob worked seven years and then another seven years for Rachel. And then the Bible says those 14 years seem like just days to him. Just days. So romantic. But 14 years working for one woman and they just went by like days? Why? His patience was extremely high. Why? He was in love. He loved Rachel with all his heart. So again, a very easy way to know if you're losing your love for Christ It's because you're losing your patience. You see it because you're losing your patience. The things that you would endure before, you just simply won't put up with now. And so these are all symptoms 
or signs, indicators that you are losing your love for Christ. Again, why? Because there are other competing loves. And so when you put those things next, next to Christ, this is the most obvious indicator, is you're just, your heart just doesn't go there. It doesn't go there. Even right now, as you're sitting here, maybe your heart is being drawn to other things. It just doesn't compete. See, I'm talking about Christ right now. I'm talking about his word right now, and yet it just doesn't compete. Your heart is being drawn to other things. And so this is what it looks like when you lose your first love. And yet the reverse can happen. So if your love originally went this way, but now it's going this way, guess what? It can go back the other way. It can go back the other way. In the same way, when you first fell in love with somebody and your crush walked into the room, you know it could be the most crowded room, but everyone fades away. Have you, have you guys seen that movie, Pride and Prejudice? I saw that with my mom for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I was a single man watching that with my mom. I don't know why. <laughs> but I remember there was a scene in that movie where they were dancing and twirling in the room. Do you guys remember that? I'm not going to do it. But they were twirling. And then suddenly, it was a beautiful camera trick, but suddenly everything blurred out and it was just the two of them. But that's how it is. But it can go back the other way where you lost focus, you were impatient, okay, things began to bother you, but now Christ comes back into focus. He has walked into the room. And so now this brings us to our third point, the restoration of love. The restoration of love. So here Jesus says in Revelation 2.5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. You do those works again. And here you can neatly summarize Jesus' recipe for restoration like this. Repent, remember, and redo. You can write that down. But Jesus said, if your heart was with me, but now it went in the opposite direction and you have competing loves... You can go back. Amen, church? You can always go back. And Jesus is very simple. Repent, remember, and redo. Redo the works you did at first. So if you've been following me in the first point and the second point, you should know the answers already by now. It's very simple. But what do you repent of? What do you repent of? Your competing loves. Right? That's why you lost your love for Christ. That's why when you come to church, I don't know. I just don't feel it. What does that mean? You don't feel it. It means you don't feel love for Christ. <laughs> Let me clarify that for you. Sometimes people go, I don't feel your sermons, or I don't feel the worship service. It kind of means you don't feel Christ. You don't feel Christ. Because when you're in love with Christ, it doesn't matter what service you go to. Okay, Jesus is always there. Yeah, I'm worshiping you, Jesus. As long as it's a true church, I worship you. I feel you. Well, Jesus says, you can go back to that. Again, it's not about feelings, but you can go back to that kind of intimacy and that love with Christ. So you repent of those other loves. Yes, I have these other saviors, but Lord Jesus, I realize for what they are. They are false. Okay, I repent of them. So repentance means changing of the mind that leads to a changing of life. And so you turn away from those things. Yes, I've trusted in these things. I really have. I say I love you. I come to church. I even know the Bible. But deep in my heart, day by day, the things that happen day by day is what's real. Day by day, I look to these other things and I trust in these other things. I do. I do. And I know it because the moment they're removed, my life collapses. I'm terrified. I do. I just trust in these other things. My family, my children, my career, my paycheck, my reputation, my friends. I trust in these other things. Circumstances working out a certain way. So, Lord God, this is robbing my love for you. I repent of it. I repent of it. I repent of it. You change your mind. These things do not save. I change my mind. And then Jesus said, remember. Remember. Remember what? Again, you should know the answer if you've been following. Remember that Jesus is the only one who saved you. Right? What are you, what are you supposed to Remember the retreat you went to in junior high school? I mean, what, what exactly are you remembering? The first time you were baptized? I mean, that's a beautiful event. But what are you remembering? You're remembering how Jesus saved you out of a hopeless state when you were trusting in all these other things and Jesus stepped in and said, I am the true Savior. I will really give you what you need. I will truly and surely save you. Okay, that's what you're remembering. Jesus, you're my Savior. Not these other things. You're my Savior. Okay, my heart, I struggle. Okay, I, I look to them, but no, I repent. You're my Savior. 
This is the beginning of love, brothers and sisters. This is how love gets kindled again. And then it says here, redo. Redo the works you did at first. So one type of work is what I just said. John 6, 28 is not going to be up there. But they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. Believe in me whom God has sent. I'll tell you what to do. This is the work God wants you to do. Believe in me. Believe in Jesus. So that's one work that we should do. Believe. But here's another work. Draw near to him. Okay, draw near. Because sometimes these days we're so afraid to talk about experience in church. But come on. I mean, what person gets married and says, you know what, I have zero experiences with my spouse? I mean, that, actually, there is a man like that uh, I heard in Japan who married a cartoon. Very bizarre. We live in strange times. He actually doesn't have any experiences, real experiences with that person because that person is not real. But any real person who gets married to a real person has experiences. So in the same way, draw near to Christ. Draw near to him. I like this very simple illustration by Charles Spurgeon, but he said, when you look at the solar system, and he lived in the 1800s, and he understood the solar system. But he said, why are the planets, certain planets, so cold and traveling so, so slowly, and other planets are so hot and moving so rapidly? Okay, why? Even my kids know the answer. Because some planets are very far away from the sun, so they're very cold and traveling slowly. And other planets are much closer to the sun. And so they are very hot and warm, and they're traveling much more quickly. And so it's the same with believers. You just have to draw near to him. But the closer you draw near to Christ, you're going to sense the warmth of your love for him being rekindled. After you've repented, after you've remembered, now you're drawing close to him, you're going to sense that rekindling of your love. Again, it's not a mystery. So many Christians just come to me and they just go, I don't know what's going on. I just don't feel the love anymore. Well, what other loves do you have? And are you drawing near to Christ? You know, I remember earlier when I first came to faith in Christ, when I was much younger, I kind of intuitively knew this. Nobody even had to teach this to me. I didn't even have to hear a sermon. But I just knew the more time I spent with Jesus, the more love I felt towards him. And the less time I spent, then the less love I had towards him. Of course, his love towards me is unchanging, but my love towards him went up and down all the time. And so I just kind of intuitively knew that. And so it's the same for you guys as well. But are you drawing near to Jesus? And so these are the steps that Jesus recommends, in fact, commands. Repent, remember, and redo the works you did at first. And we're coming to a close, but he says, there are two things here now. There's a warning and a promise. But he says that this is so critical, brothers and sisters. Love, for me, is so critical. It's not just a secondary thing. It's not just something like an icing on the top. But this is so critical that if you do not repent and rekindle your first love, then Jesus said what? I will remove your lampstand. In fact, he's saying, I'm going to close down the church. And this can happen to individuals as well. Some of you guys are thinking, okay, that's sad if the promise closes down, but oh well. <laughs> but this can happen to individuals as well. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to close down your influence. I will not use you. You are not usable to me. You will have no influence for me in the world. That is what Jesus is saying. I will close it down. The light that I kindled in your life to shine for me in the world, it will be snuffed out. And so this is what Jesus is saying. So God forbid that this would happen to our church or to anybody here, that he will close it down and close down our influence. So this is Jesus' warning, but if we heed his warning and we're truly coming to a close, then he gives us amazing promise. But look at verse 7. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We looked at this last week, but having ears to hear means just having a receptive heart, a believing heart. But if you can just hear, open your heart and receive what I'm saying to you. If you can hear what the Spirit is saying to you even right now, and to the entire church, then to the one who conquers, I will grant them to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, you're going to overcome and you're going to be with me. Guaranteed, you're going to be with me. And so then what is that? The desire of your love is going to be fulfilled. Okay, the thing that you are longing for. Okay, Jesus, okay, I forgot my love for you. 
because I loved other things. Now I've turned back to you, and I'm longing, right? I want more of you. I'm longing to be with you. And Jesus says, here's my promise. If you overcome, then that longing will be fulfilled. You will be with me. You will be with me. And that is the most beautiful promise I can think of. See, unless you've truly been in love, and a lot of us haven't been here because we're younger as a church, but if you've truly been in love, the thing that is most precious to you is, I just want to be with that person. And Jesus says, I guarantee it, you will be with me in paradise. The object of your love, me, you will have. And so I can't think of anything more glorious than that. You will overcome this world. Okay, all the competing loves, you will overcome that. Okay, that's not just a few believers. That's actually every believer. Every true believer overcomes. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, all the things that compete for your love, the things that draw you away from God, you will overcome all of those things, and you will have the object of your love. Amen? Let's bow. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Today is Communion Sunday, but we're going to just spend some time in the presence of Jesus. He's the one that we love. He's the one that we want. So thank you, Lord Jesus. We just come before you right now. And Lord God, the things that you commanded us to do, that's what we want to do right now. We want to start with repentance. And then we want to remember. And then we want to redo the works we did at first. Long after the service is over, we want to keep doing those works. So Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. Let's just come with an honest heart. And you know your heart, but if this is you, just confess it to God. God, I lost my first love. And now I know why. The answer is very simple. I love other things. I love other things. I've said this before, but the quickest and truest way to understand a person, to truly know a person, is look at what they love. Because you are what you love. And the deepest part of your heart, that's who you are, is what you love. So the deepest part of your heart, if you love money, that's who you are. Or if in the deepest part of your heart you love Jesus, that's who you are. And God knows it already, so just come before him, honestly, and say, God, I love other things. And that's why my love for you has grown cold, and I want to repent of that. And so let's just spend a moment doing that to these communion Sunday. We're going to have a little bit more extended time of prayer. But thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus.